This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Balls. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, barring incident, I hope, as Jackie rolls her eyes at my catchphrase, <laughs> is Lyle Fulton. And I'm joined by the wonderful Jackie Balls. Jackie, as I always do, before we start any episode of this podcast, I always ask you, how are you doing this fine Friday afternoon? There's something very comforting about it being on a Friday afternoon because we've been here, there and everywhere during the week. But how are you doing? How has your week been this week? been very, very good week this week. Very busy. I've just literally come back from a mercy dash to the school. I got, I got a text going, Mum, I lost my shoe. And I'm like, where are you? They don't allow phones in the school. So I'm just like, hey, what? Where are you? But he was actually in the school and I think he was given permission to text me. So I've literally just come back from Mercy Dash up to the school to deliver some more shoes. I don't know what happened to the shoe. Excellent. I, I, I love I love also there's there's so much to unpick, which we won't do because we have a guest, ladies and gentlemen. We have a guest list. So we won't unpick this like we might normally do on an episode of the podcast. It's but the mystery of the missing shoe. We'll bring this up, I no doubt, in a few weeks' time. You know, uh, one shoe. Uh, so <laughs> you know, how does one lose one shoe and not a pair of shoes? Clearly that's kind of some sort of events happened there. And also I'm glad you clarified that he had his own phone and that he didn't somehow get hold of like a burn a phone in school uh, they, they just don't allow phones at all in the school and he somehow managed to get hold of a phone and there's no permission but i have no idea yet i didn't stop to ask i was just like oh i've got to get back for a podcast i've got to get out there quickly get back again find there you go. i'm glad i'm glad that the week's gone well and that you've kind of navigated the travails that is a missing shoe a missing piece of clothing uh, and listeners normally i'd come up with a segue into how we introduce our guests but i'm at a bit of a loss when it comes to missing shoes <laughs> And then our guest this week, listeners. But we're absolutely delighted to have this guest well, on the podcast. If ever there is a missing shoe, or have you found any missing pieces of, of clothing or shoes? It's a first question I didn't exactly have planned uh, for our guest <laughs> listeners, but maybe I'll maybe I'll throw it uh, in his direction because listeners, this week we are joined by the absolutely brilliant Andrew Richardson. Now, Andrew is CEO, managing director of Home House Collection, which is a collection of private members' clubs. And we are absolutely delighted to have Andrew on the podcast this week. I suppose we'll kick off, Andrew. First things first, how are you doing this Friday? And have you ever had to mercy dash anywhere because someone's lost a shoe? Uh, which is the weirdest question I'll ever ask a guest straight off the bat. But how are you doing, Andrew? How's that? Uh, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. And uh, obviously, thank you for inviting me to join you on, on, on this podcast. Having a very good day. And I guess the segue from, from shoes to me is probably the fact that there's plenty of police outside at the moment. So... If you hear any whistles from all these outriders that are whizzing dignitaries around London at the moment, that is them. There's many of them. So um, that's that's the segue. I'm not sure they've got time to look for shoes at the moment. But, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very pleased to know that um, a, a pair was delivered. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of excitement at the moment, isn't there? I mean, the energy levels are rising, of course. Um, not wishing to date the podcast too much, but it's oh, very we've important. We've dated it now. We have, yeah. No, the, <laughs> but I think I think if ever there was an opportunity yeah. to date it, it is probably yes. this week. Because in fairness, yeah. we are on the eve of like quite a significant event. Um, you know, depending on your opinions of it. Um, but I suppose, regardless of your opinions of it, it's a very significant weekend in the history of our of our country. And we're delighted to have you on as well, Andrew, because uh, you arrive episode 40 of the podcast episode 40 of the rest is pr so a very significant milestone so we're honored that it's you who is uh, wow. who is on the podcast with us 
it is me that is honoured, and I certainly <laughs> hope that there is an episode 41 after this. <laughs> so do we. So do we. I, I definitely do. Strap in, listeners, because clearly when sentences like that are thrown around, there is always the possibility that this could well be. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm checking. I'm also checking. But Andrew, pleasure to have you on the podcast this Friday afternoon. And as I mentioned, you are managing director of the Home House Collection. So I suppose we'll kick things off straight off the bat, um, like we do with all of our guests who come on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your career so far, how you came to be a founder of the Home House Collection, and basically just a little bit about how you got into that space, really? Well, yes, I guess it started, my career started with the need to, to earn some pocket money, like most youngsters. And the local paper round had already been taken. So I knocked on the door of a local hotel and asked them if they had any jobs. And um, I was offered the, a paint scraper and pointed to the kitchen, which seemed an odd combination, but it was a kitchen porter. And I, the paint scraper was for cleaning the, the dirty pots that had been burnt and scraping off the bottom. So there began my career in a local hotel in Stratford-on-Avon, which is uh, where I was growing up. Shakespeare. Shakespeare country, yes, yeah. And, you know, I was a bit wayward as a youngster at school, I suppose, and I hadn't really chosen my career route at that particular time, much to the, I guess, the annoyance and disappointment of my parents to a degree. But I stumbled on hospitality, and I thought, this looks really uh, a lot of fun, and everybody seems to be enjoying themselves, and obviously there's the mystery and the glamour of, of the industry. So I applied to go to the local catering college and uh, became a chef. And obviously, as part of my pot washing career, one of the chefs had become sick and broken his hand or something, had a motorbike accident, so I was offered an apron and uh, talked how to do a few basic tasks to help them out. And, and it just, I enjoyed it. So, and I went to, yeah, hospitality, catering college, became a chef, and actually was pretty good at it. So um, I was introduced at that particular moment in time after it, to probably one of the best country hotels in the area with a very good chef and joined them. There's a place called Billsley Manor Hotel, actually. Still exists, like a lot of hotels, it goes through different ownership, etc. But at that time, very good chef. And I, I just really enjoyed being a chef. So I finished my um, training at college, stayed there. And then I think when I was 21 years of age, the chef that I was working for at the same hotel was offered to come to London as the head chef at the Park Lane Hotel on the Piccadilly which is now, I think, the new Sheraton Grand or the Sheraton Grand. And he gave, offered me a job as a young 21-year-old as a, what they call a junior sous chef. So I had responsibility now and people that were working under my directive. And then a, few, a couple of years after that, I went to the Dorchester Hotel in London as a chef. And that was in the, the 80s, I think, the days of Nouvelle Cuisine and Anton Mosiman. And he had two Michelin stars. So I spent some time in his terrace restaurant and the grill room there, which led me to, as a young man, went to a little bit out of London to the Royal Berkshire Hotel in Ascot. And I remember those early days of um, Royal Ascot week. And some of the guests we would have were, were, were amazing. And there was a gentleman that was an owner of a, a very famous hotel called The Goring who was there uh, one evening. And um, he came into the kitchen, wanted to watch the service that I was conducting with the general manager. And I said, yes, as long as you quietly stand to one side, you can watch the show. And, and they did. And he was, an, he was fun, actually, because uh, um, they went off and had a few more drinks. And he decided to jump in the swimming pool, fully clothed in, in, in his black tie, <laughs> etc. Which is, I think... <laughs> What a lot of people did at during Royal Alaska Week, right? They've had a good time. They've had some winners. They've had a few drinks. Why not jump in the pool? 
So um, from there, I um, I just thought, well, at the time, everybody thought you couldn't cook unless you'd worked in France. So I thought, well, I guess I'd better make sure that, you know, I can qualify to cook and go and get a job in France for a while. So I went to, I got a job at the Paris Hilton Hotel, which was in Avenue Souffren. I think it's now called the Pullman Hotel. So I, I, when I went there, I didn't speak a word of French. Um, so my first role was the chef de party in the, the garde the cold kitchen that did all the buffets, et cetera. But it was a bit like the United Nations in that kitchen because most of my colleagues were either Dutch, Italian, French, you know, some of them from African countries. Anyway, I was the Brit that, that was in charge of that brigade in that department. Thankfully, I guess when you're at college or in studying catering, most of the cuisine terminology is in French. So I, at least I could understand what was written on the function sheet. Trying to communicate that to, between each other sometimes was was, was interesting. <laughs> but it went well. Um, and then I, I, whilst I was there, I became, as you do, I, I, I met a young French lady that eventually became my, my uh, wife and the mother of our children. Uh, so that was very helpful in, in learning a little bit of, little bit of French. Um, and I progressed to looking after the uh, source section and then obviously the I was in uh, charge of banqueting at one point and just one particular story when I was in charge of the banqueting there was a function for about six or seven hundred people and then all the banqueting waiters were looking extremely well dressed on this particular occasion they'd all got their white gloves out and um, and there were some more senior people that had turned up at the front of the line so one of them said to to me um uh, monsieur vous êtes the chef de cuisine and i that's how i responded in my um, english accent yes yes i'm the, the chef in charge and he looked at me with this bizarre look and uh, and he looked down the line at his colleagues and he said Oh la la, oh la la, the chef, il est anglais, he's an Englishman. <laughs> and it and it travelled all the way down the line. Uh, but it had to be uh, heads of state, and they couldn't get their head around the fact that an Englishman was in charge of this particular yeah, this particular this particular meal. And that's a fact when I most I haven't actually applied. The thing about catering is if you apply yourself and you're any good at it, you probably never really apply for a job because people keep calling you or tapping you on the shoulder. Yeah. So I got a phone call one day and said, would I go back to the Royal Berkshire Hotel as a head chef? So a young chef at 25 years of age, I went back there and um, had a team, roughly about 20 people, which was including the kitchen porters. So at 25, it's a steep learning curve in terms of leadership. So I learned a, a lot the hard way. I mean, I guess you're young, you work hard, so you try and lead, lead by example. But interesting time, fair few sleepless nights, but did well, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I got a phone call one day and somebody had asked me if I would like to go to Hong Kong. Some owners of uh, restaurants in Hong Kong, an Australian guy and a, uh, a German, actually. But their restaurants were known for European cuisine. It was a British colony. Brits didn't need visas. And they wanted a chef patron. Somebody that could obviously run the kitchen, but also front the business. Make, make, make it look authentic, if you like, because I was the only European in a European restaurant. And it was, you know, it was a large restaurant, 150 seaters. So everyone else was local Hong Kong Chinese. So I was the token offering of um, <laughs> authentication, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and it, it was already a very successful business. So, um, yeah, I, I joined there. I went there, I think, in 1993. I was in Hong Kong for nine years. Went from one in one, one restaurant to... A couple then became the operations director, 
and then the managing director, and we grew the group to nine businesses. So I made that jump, really, I guess, from chef to restaurateur. Yeah. And also a bit about business, because a lot of chefs, as I, I was, wanted my own business. And it was kind of, this was good. I could, I could learn some skills with somebody else's money. I could try that transition and have an adventure at the same time. And an, an, an adventure it was. And then in those nine years I was there, I took the restaurant group from three to nine operations. But at any given time, there were two or three losing money. And it was really interesting because you get called into um, HSBC, where our lender at the time, and the two guys that owned it wanted to retire. So they put me as their managing director. I guess I was chosen amongst the managers of all the restaurants. You're our man. And off they went to Australia and um, Germany and left me, left me in charge. And the bank would give me a call and say, do you want to borrow some more money to open <laughs> some more restaurants? Which I thought, well, this is, you know, this is good. Yes, please. So I did. And uh, I had a bunch of mates that between us pretty much had most of Hong Kong restaurants sewn up. And we'd meet on a Saturday to discuss landlords and rents and different behaviours. But of course, like every economy, there is a downturn. Mm. Um, and I think it was 98 in Hong Kong, the Asian economic bubble burst a bit. Property values in Hong Kong dropped by 40%. Obviously, interest rates shot up. And all of a sudden, the same bank that kept calling me to lend me money suddenly kept calling me to ask me how I was going to pay it back. So, which was which was interesting. You know, I spent a lot of time then having to forecasting. There was all sorts of pressures going on at the time. You know, the company survived. A deal was done to merge it with a larger restaurant group. Actually, at the time, it was owned by Sherman Tang, who's David Tang's cousin, owner of Shanghai Tang. They own a billionaire family in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, so I learned another bit of, obviously, I learned about borrowing and money and paying it back, obviously, on a much larger scale. And I also learned that you can be an owner or an equity owner of a business one minute thinking you've got something and the next there's a cash call and you haven't got anything. So, you know, that was part of the journey. And, and then eventually, because the companies were merged, I, my position became redundant. Um, and I said to my wife at the time, given you know the cost of school fees and living in Hong Kong, um, we can make a choice. We can, you know, go back to Europe and settle. And she wanted the children to to get to know family. So we chose to come back to the UK. And I made a couple of phone calls and found a, an ex-colleague who was part of a, a hotel sort of management company. And he said, well, we're running some family hotels. And my partner was one of the owners. And that was, oddly enough, he said, do you know a place called Billsley Manor Hotel? And I said, well, yes, that was the first place I worked. He said, well, we're looking for a manager. Would you come back and manage it? And, I, and it was ideal for me because I grew up in that area. I knew it was a good area and I could settle my, my children there. And I had family there. So that's what took me back in a bit of a full circle. That management company, and I ended up getting, sorry, it's a bit of the story of got involved in partnership for a couple of gastro pubs that were, were bought and sold. But that management company also at the time had a hotel in Oxford, Italy Village, which was underperforming, and I kind of got given the job as the problem solver, the, you know, the troubleshooter. I get sent to all the troubled places and try and rescue them, really. And often they were owned by private owners that probably didn't really have a good plan or strategy. One hotel needed rescuing, uh, unbeknown to me, was owned by the owners of Home House. So it was a turnaround project. It did such a good job. Eventually, they said, we'd rather hire you ourselves permanently rather than the management company. So that's sort of how I ended up here at Home House. And, you know, they've now sort of got me on a 
the profit share scheme would um, be shares. So I, I get a, a bit of skin in the game, uh, particularly about if I add value to their organisation and our expansion into homegrown. Our second club is obviously a part of that. So that's pretty much my my story. I've been here 15 years and I cannot believe how quickly 15 years has gone, to be fair. And I don't know about you guys, but life keeps speeding up. I just need to find a way of slowing it down. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's so, I mean, goodness me. What any worries about there being an episode 41 have just instantly been dashed because people will be hooked, <laughs> right? Okay. If anything, we need to manage expectations as more guests come on because I mean, what an extraordinary story. And, and thank you so much for like sort of bringing us through that as well. I mean, I have so, there's so many questions that I have just like sort of like off the top of my head. And we're obviously going to talk about, you know, the importance of clubs like the Home House Collection and things like that. And, and when it comes to kind of, you know, business relationships, business marketing, but I've got a question actually just off the back of that. And I did warn you, I said, we'll go off on some tangents. Yeah, we always I go mean, off tangents. I kind of pride I pride myself a bit on the research I do. And so something that's, I think, the biggest falling through the net that's ever happened in the history of the podcast is the fact that I was blissfully unaware that you'd been a chef, um, <laughs> uh, which was such a huge part of your trajectory, <laughs> your journey to where you are now. But, I mean, my question is, and again, like, sorry, it's so open. Did you, when you started out as a chef, and obviously, like, such an extraordinary story, an extraordinary journey you had to then being a head chef at the age of 25 at such a reputable kitchen, in such a reputable hotel. I mean, did you always have in the back of your mind that this was where you wanted to go? Did you have kind of business on the brain, as it were, when you started out in, you know, the, the chefing industry? Or was it something that kind of just more organically happened as you started to kind of grow and expand and sort of broaden your horizons and meet new people? I mean, was was it, was it always something that you had in mind? Funny enough, I when I was much younger at school, I liked maths. I was good at numbers. My father started his life as an accountant um, in his early career. And my two sons, one's an electronic engineer, which is all maths, and the other one's a geological engineer. They've got engineering brains. Why did I become a chef? Really an odd question. But I liked the creativity side of it. But I then enjoyed the fact that I could take that creativity and I could I could actually plan and work out how I could turn it into money. Mm. That idea of understanding how I could use that skill to generate cash, I suppose, is the bit that has been driving me all the way through. And the, the meeting of this is a people business. It is all about people, whether they're part of your, you know, your colleagues in your team or your customers. So I think you have to really understand the human behavior, but also you know, everyone's buying something. So I think that's probably the, the common thread that linked the two of the fact that the creativity and people, but putting the two together to ultimately turn it into money. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it really yeah. is. It's, it's so brilliant. It really is brilliant. And I suppose actually as well, I mean, you touched on a really interesting point, which is that, you know, in your experience, people you knew in the industry, a lot of chefs do ultimately end up wanting to kind of have their own business and have control. And I suppose as well, I mean, you know, it's brilliant to hear that your sons have kind of gone into engineering. I suppose being a chef is kind of food engineering, right? I mean, I don't know whether or not I'm just kind of like, you know, yeah, sending that up. Yeah. But it yeah, is it is quite interesting. So. I mean, so talk to us about your kind of position within, obviously, I mean, we know you're the managing director and I know we obviously we've heard how you came to be at a Home House Collection. I mean, talk about, I suppose, the last couple of years for Home House, because obviously you've been there for a little while. I mean, I, I think I mentioned in the document I sent across to you before we, before we went live today, I mean, it must have been a really, really interesting period of time 
Um, it's actually, this is a bit of a segue, Flaxen listeners, and I don't want to date the podcast too much, but a news story popped up on my phone just before um, we went live on the podcast that the World Health Organization have today declared that COVID is basically over. Like uh, as a as a world disaster, uh, as a world health disaster, COVID is done. I don't know. Yikes. I don't want to posit any opinions on that. But obviously for the last or two or three years, it's been a really interesting, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, tumultuous time. Yeah. I mean, how, how was, how was that? How has it been? And how have you kind of come out of the other side of that? And what's the last kind of 18 months, two years been like for Home House? <laughs> All right. Well, how long you got? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got a long time. We've got yeah. some time. Don't worry. Yeah. Deep, this is a deep it, dive. Yeah. Well, crikey, it was incredible, wasn't it? Unprecedented. It was just the, the sheer fear and hell of being told to shut your businesses down when you're hiring. You know, you've got two. Yeah, I can imagine there's other employers that have significantly more. Uh, people in their team but you know, you've got 250 people and you suddenly told one day well you don't need them anymore so that was the biggest fear initially is there's no rule book for this and you're suddenly thrown with a big problem and you've got to make some quick decisions about how best to deal with it um, in, in the right level you have a responsibility to your customers your shareholders and obviously your people that you work for so there's a lot of communication needed and a very quick plan to be developed so initially I, the, the priority was our people our staff i guess initially because it was like well you know they they need to know if they've got an income and what that's going to be so we initially said, well, you're all still got jobs. We're just going to basically split the teams in two. We had clauses in our contract that would enable to do that in times of a downturn. So we didn't do what some hospitality businesses did and react and just get rid of them all. So first of all, we guaranteed them income. And then obviously, luckily, within 24 hours, of, I think it was at 48 hours, obviously, uh, the Chancellor Rishi decided to, to put the furlough scheme out, which was brilliant. It's that, amazing. That it was, wasn't it? Because that enables you to breathe a bit. And it also calms everybody down and people know that they've got income and um, it's going to be consistent. And, and that, So that was great. And then it's a matter of then quickly throwing together, you know, with my finance director at the time, finance team, and some, okay, what's our cash burn? What do we need? What's the landlord's position? So then it's cash, it's survival, isn't it? Can we yeah. survive this? So, and then that's, that was the ter- first two things. Then the third thing is, is, okay, what do we do with our customers? And that was uh, the framework that I got for that was, which I said to the team, which is something I picked up really through a PR organization that I'd spoken with. Just obviously show empathy, look after your brand. And that was the message I went to the team with is that this will end. And a lot of what, who we are will be defined by how we behave during this um, so empathy was everything. We didn't just go dark. We had people answering the phones. We told our members, if you didn't want to keep paying your subscriptions, that's fine. You can cancel it and pick it up you know, when we're open again. But if you if you did choose to keep paying, we would then give you that money back as a credit to spend within the business. So uh, thankfully, most a lot did just say, okay, I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave that. Um, I'll leave that going. They'd ask about, you know, we'd always say, how are you first? That was also, if anybody called, how are you? Was the first question. And then inevitably, they would say, well, how are you? And then they want to know how the business was, right? One, one, you know, but if you go in there with, you owe me some money or you've got to keep yeah. paying your subs, you're going to do your brand no good whatsoever. So that worked really well. And obviously, the shareholders were bored. The board were, were very good. The bank were very good. So every so then you got the framework to, um, to just tick along, which was, was good. So we carried, you know, as we are today, we went virtual. We 
put events online, we create little community huddles, we kept a little bit of noise, outgoing communications, let people know what we were up to. And I had, I think I had about 15 of my team on, on a reduced wage. Everybody, everybody took a voluntary pay cut at that moment. And all, the only sort of thing we had um, was a coffee huddle every morning at 10 o'clock. And it wasn't meant to be, what are you all doing? It was always, how are you? You okay? That'll uh, you know, Friday we'd sign up at lunchtime with a bit of a quiz and a glass of wine. And so that was that was the, the human bit. And then in between that, we planned all these events and uh, stayed in communication with you know, who we needed to and answered the phones to to our members. So great. So then it was a matter of like, you know, just trying to open up, really. Uh, we Every time we had to close, we were the last to close. And every time we could open, we were the first to open. Uh, and we have a garden here, so it's great. At home house, we have a garden. Sadly, at homegrown, they didn't. But every time we could open the doors, we, we opened the doors. When it finally lifted, if you like, I mean, obviously, we had a brief period in one summer. It's amazing to see the joy on people's faces when they could come back in and be sociable. Yeah, I think everybody was very different on the spectrum of COVID in terms of how they felt about it. There were some people that, as far as they were concerned, it never existed. Uh, mm -hmm. There were others that had come into the club and said, I've just seen two of your members hugging each other. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can imagine that's just like incredibly awkward things to do with, right? You know, well, yeah, like... you just kind of shrug your shoulders. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? Don't do it. Exactly. I mean, I suppose as well, it's extraordinary because, and again, this kind of segues quite nicely into kind of the importance of these places as well. And I actually think I sent you a question, which is like not even just from a business perspective and a business relationships perspective and networking perspective and marketing perspective, but these places have real social significance, you know, when it comes to people's way of life, the interactions they go about on a day-to-day -day basis. And obviously that must have been, you know, we can obviously be here virtually doing a podcast and recording a podcast now and, and, and business kind of rolled on, didn't it, throughout the mm. pandemic and throughout the crisis because this was, we were able to do this. But the social element of clubs like Home House, sort of clubs like Homegrown, you know, you're so right in what you say. There isn't even really a question here for which I apologise. But like, you know, when people arrive back, there must have been a real kind of like upturn in kind of everyone's morale and like kind of that must have been a really extraordinary thing to, to witness. Just a massive appreciation for things that, you know, basic things that have been taken away. If I could bottle the joy that was on people's faces and the happiness that mm. people had to be able to say hi to each other again... You know, it's like the classic scenario. I, I, I was talking to uh, my wife. She talked about her father. They live in Wisconsin, and he's he's a you know he's a friendly chap. And he was came to London once, and he he was walking around London, and he he say hi or good morning to people, and he said, "I've been here for three days. No one's actually spoken to me. They've never said hi back." That's <laughs> <laughs> what well, they probably think you're a little bit crazy. <laughs> in <laughs> London, they would. It's London, so strange, yes. isn't it? It's just well, people won't. Yeah, you might, you know, if you go for a walk where you live, you might only pass three people, but you can't, you're going to pass 300 or 400. So, but during, when we reopened after COVID, it was like that. Everybody would say hi to each other, say hi back. Everybody would say, how are you? Yeah. The whole world had something in common to talk about. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it did actually unite people um, and it brought so much joy. And it, yes, if you could actually, I just wish I could have filmed it. 
because yeah. I've captured it in some way. And every now and again, I go, look, you just how much you should enjoy life. This is this mm. is what it means to you. It's interesting because I'm obviously a member of, of Home House and of Homegrown. And I sort of went away from it for a bit and came back because I was one of the founder members of Home House when it first started because I was working with Richard Farley, who's one of the investors in the original Home House. And then when I came back, there was suddenly Homegrown, which is... An amazing, different club. It's got the same brand ethos, in the sense that you do feel like you're part of the home house group of, of clubs, but it's a much more energetic, socially robust environment. I mean, home house, I feel, is a little bit more elegant and dignified and refined apart from Friday nights. But homegrown, it's like, it's a bit more kind of like you can get in there, you can be typing away on your, your computer and somebody else will come past and say, and overhear a conversation you've had and said, oh, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm in that area of business and uh, we should have a talk sometime. And it's it's a very entrepreneurial feel to homegrown. How did you come up with two clubs with such essentially different feels? Was it very deliberate when you created Homegrown to be like that? Yeah, it was it had to be, really. It's the same landlord, Portman Estates, and it's um, it's a long lease as, as home houses. So when, when the site was available, the, uh, the CEO at the time, Bill Moore, had mentioned that, oh, well, are we going to pitch for the site? And I said, well, no, why? Why do we want to put another club right next to the club we've already got? It's only 200 metres apart. It is, yeah. Um, and that, and so you would end up plagiarising your own business. And it was only when the third time he said, are you going to put a pitch in for it? I thought, oh, there might be an opportunity here. So <laughs> then, then, then came the problem. What the heck, what are we going to do? Um, <laughs> but the concept was born out of behaviour of people, to be fair, watching people and understanding the shift perhaps in the market at the time. And, and we knew that we couldn't operate a late licence there. It's, it was very much within a community. There wasn't really much opportunity to have the, the sort of revelry late night activity we have here. Um, so we had to, we focused on purpose and we had quite a few people using here for, for business and wanting to build their network. And we started an event here, which was very successful, which was called Crocodile Lair, which was a bit of a Dragon's Den style thing. So we actually really thought it was time. And then we work, I think, had, had just begun. So the idea was to focus with the same DNA and the, and the sort of the brand values that we have as you know, unique individuals, a nice convivial environment and create a community. We decided we wanted to create a community based on a purpose. And that purpose was purely to help entrepreneurs who scale up businesses with the growing pains that there inevitably are. And so that helped us shape the, the calendar of events that we, we have, which ultimately support those growing pains with events that uh, help people with raising finance, with their own leadership capabilities and, and, and you know, increasing their leadership skills, growing their infrastructure, access to their customers, and just hiring people for talent and skills. And, and these weren't the problems we made up. This was uh, done by uh, um, research by the Scale-Up Institute, which was backed by the government. So it doesn't matter what business you're in, everyone has these problems. Mm. So we wanted to create a community that would help, help solve those problems. So as we all do in life, we build a community. When things get difficult, we want to call somebody. It's the quickest way to get an answer to a problem that you, you know, from somebody you trust. So yeah. we wanted to curate that in our own members club. So we decided we wanted an ecosystem, which was going to be roughly 
sorry, not 20, 70% entrepreneurs slash, you know, performance business leaders, people responsible for growing organizations, 20% investors and 10% service providers, or actually, sorry, the other way around, 20% service providers, 10% investors. But the ecosystem will actually work well because obviously if you end up with too many service providers chasing, yes, chasing, yeah, chasing the entrepreneurs for some business, Mm. And then you end up with just very few investors and entrepreneurs chasing investors all the time. Uh, one's going to kill off the other. So as we grow this community, that's how that's how we do that. And it opened at the worst possible time, literally three, three months before COVID hit. So, you know, like... <laughs> I, I sort of cross my arms in fear when I talk about this, but um, it was it, that made COVID even worse, if you like, because as usual with these sort of businesses, it was a very rundown building. It needed significant money spending on it. There were problems that we didn't know existed. There were issues around English heritage and what we could and couldn't do. There were delays and overruns. So, of course, you know, the people I report to were starting to get a little bit stressed, I suppose, with the overspend. And we opened late and behind plan in terms of where we expected to be with members and then COVID hit. So we made the best possible use of the time in COVID. So we, we really had a bit of a reset and gave us time to ask ourselves why were we slightly behind where we needed to be with the number of members. So we had a look at the messaging. Was it clear? And obviously, you know, we made some changes, refreshed our website, honed, honed the message, did some retraining with the team. And since it reopened, it's been great. In it. And thank you, Jackie. Yes, it is full of energy. It's um, it full, of, full of a really active community of members that really get it. And it's amazing when you open restaurants, as I've done, and I see hotel openings and clubs. It has to get a personality. And very early on, people are like, how should I behave? You know, you, you need a few noisy people to champion the behavior. Yeah, we are sheep. At least, well, quite a lot of the people are sheep through to the end of the day. And once one or two people make a bit of noise and the pioneers who lead the way, then, you know, there are those that go, ah, yes, I can do that as well. And I know how to behave now. And that works for me. That's exactly what I want. So, yeah, a lot of people, the founder members have, have started to make it theirs. And when people feel ownership, then they're also your best champions for um, marketing. And obviously, then it grows from there. And as the membership base grows, more and more of the new members come from their own, from recommendations of the current members. And the interesting thing to me with Homegrown was, certainly for me, when I first joined Home House, I as a person at that stage probably wouldn't have if I hadn't been working for Richard Farley because I saw it as something for somebody else somebody with maybe a bit more class or money than I had. I saw it as an upper echelon of society that I wasn't part of and it wouldn't be for me. But it because I had, luckily I had that introduction, I realised that it's not about that at all. It's much more about the communities you've been talking about. But the interesting thing I've found about Homegrown is how wonderfully accessible it is. It's not about snobbery or anything like that. It just has this genuine business vibe and, and an, an exciting vibe and a happy, comfortable vibe. You don't feel like it's stuffy at all, but you do feel proud to be there because it's a lovely environment. I mean, you've mentioned British Heritage, but you've built a beautiful club there. It's got the sort of the second era out for business. Like, 
it's little small things that you don't notice about things like this, but I do notice it because I look out for it. Things like the fact that you can plug your computer in. There are plugs everywhere. You can you can actually talk on the phone in most of the rooms except for the restaurant in Homegrown. And you just feel very at ease. And I think that's really remarkable. But there are two classes of membership, aren't there? You can join Homegrown or you can join Home House or you can join both of them, can't you? Yeah, or you can be a member of the collection. And I think that you know the, the, the key difference between the two is is is, is purpose. And because it's so clear at homegrown, you can doesn't matter what class you are or how much money you've got, you have something in common, and that is that you have a business and you, you want to grow that business and you're ambitious and you want to solve some problems. And that is the level of really everyone's there with with that that desire. A lot of other clubs, home house, and now it's that much more mature, quite often is, you know, well, who am I going to meet? Who's going to be there? So, you know, homegrown's about why. Home house probably sometimes is who, and, it, you know, the social mobility. And also home house, as a lot of the members use it, to entertain friends. They're not, and they're not always looking to meet new friends, but honestly, just about 90% of all new members, you know, when, you, when you, there's a bit of a questionnaire, why would you like to join the club? It is always to meet other people. And, and in a world today which is very transient and you come into a big city, a world city like London, and you, you need to belong, you want a sense of belonging, you want to have some contacts and you want to make some friends. So you need to be part of a community. And that's why members clubs are thriving, because you will select the community that you feel is most suitable for you in the location you live. And that, that happens a lot. So, you know, people are on their journey and they're in town for two, three years, they become a member, perhaps they'll move on or perhaps they keep their membership. And I think also recently we've had quite a few uh, younger members um, in both clubs actually join. And I think COVID has contributed to that. You know, people have had to pay catch-ups um, for, their, for their community and their network having been locked away for a couple of years. It's been quite interesting for me because my nephew, he just graduated in Newcastle in a BSE for chemistry. He got a job at one of the non-profits down here. And the first thing he said to me, he came to live with us for a few months while he was working himself out. First thing he said to me is like, I need to go to a gym, but I'm going to join a club. And I was like, wow, where did that come from? And it is that feeling that you know, he wants to start his own business. He wants to meet people yeah. who are entrepreneurial too. He didn't know anybody from Adam up, you know, he's come from Newcastle, coming down to London. He only knows me and that's very boring for him. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to find new friends. And I just said to him, that's great. And obviously I said to him, you should join Homegrown. It is as accessible as buying a gym membership as buying a club membership and if you're lucky some clubs actually have a gym well that's right it's very true it is true and i think you know the stigma of what people considered clubs used to be like in the class system mm. you know and of course you once you graduated from your situation or whatever university and then you go to work you join the club where and everybody would know each other and and, and sort of spend their lives in the same club uh, and certainly when I was younger, someone mentioned private members club in London. I just think of a stuffy old place with wing back chairs and old men falling asleep <laughs> with a glass of four. <laughs> and there's still a room in homegrown where you can do that, by the way. There is. Uh, there's a dedicated room where like, don't, you know, don't knock yeah. that, right? There is still a room where that can happen. I mean, I'm really intrigued, like, I'm really pleased that stigma has kind of been brought up. And I'm really pleased that 
that that that's kind of been because because there it has been for decades that you're so right in, in that observation that there has been one like that but i'm also really fascinated and, and I'm, I'm i'm very intrigued and impressed by your use of the word purpose as well because i think that's kind of where when i was doing my research into home house before before we went live today that's where something like homegrown is really changing the game for me because i've got friends who are members of of clubs who really do thrive in that kind of that's that social element and that kind of you know meeting new people and networking but this idea that not only is there a club that you can kind of socialize and network and meet new people but there's also a club and an option to be a member of a club where you can also kind of like you can grow your own endeavors you can pursue things you can go to events that inform and and educate you and a question i was going to sort of put to you actually is with that in mind and with homegrown doing as well as it's doing there's probably n- never been a better time for a club like homegrown that does these things to exist because the advent of new technologies that clubs like homegrown can use give you like carte blanche to you know host a wide array of intriguing events i mean how have you been adapting like how have your team been adapting to sort of new technologies we're we're big fans of sort of you know harping on about ai and things like that on the podcast i mean how has it been over the last couple of years since covid and again, World Health Organization, since COVID ended, well, I'm just going to like sort of invite commas that, but since that ended and we kind of came out the other side, like how have you adapted to new ways of doing things? How are you innovating over at Home House at the moment? Well, I think um, ultimately because we they're clubs and they're physical premises and we are primarily for getting people in them and, con- yeah. and consuming and spending money. But equally, um, we do some events, obviously, still still virtually, and obviously a lot of communications. But we see our members. I mean, we're just the facilitator. The, the people that are really making the difference are the members. We're creating this um, sort of ecosystem for them to do that and the physical premises. But you, a, lot, a lot of members, obviously, uh, are using technology, uh, certainly to, to meet each other all the time. We use a little bit for members to be able to connect th- through uh, through the, the club itself, or whether it's virtual or, or in reality. And we beam a few, you know, a few of our sort of key events, like the Rockstar series. Sometimes we'll we'll put that online so people can dial in wherever they are to see it. Because the Rockstars series is one of our signature events at Homegrown, where we take an, an entrepreneur who's done it, built the big company, sold on for tens of hundreds of millions, and then can sit there in front of a Q&A and tell their story. And it's so popular. It's wonderful, isn't it? You sit there for an hour, and you, then you can hear how everybody makes mistakes, and they've all gone through tough times, but, you know, and how they've prevailed and nobody had the perfect idea at the beginning. Things went wrong along the way. They learned from their mistakes. They adapted and adjusted, and the, and the journey continued. And, you know, funnily enough, Richard Farley was the first rock star that we had at home. Road. Yes. Well, isn't that perfect? I mean, he was actually the key investor for Homegrown initially, Back in the late 90s, he put up most of the money uh, along with then there was a few other investors, of course. So he was he was the brave soul that brought Home House to life. As he told me at the time, it was the early years of the dot com boom. And his idea was it was where all the techies would get together and you know change the world. It was. And when I met when I met with him there, he was cash. 
and they were launching an online site to sell tennis rackets. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's one of his that didn't work. I mean, yeah. he, he, told, <laughs> he told me about that. But he did, he did say to the gentleman, the original managing director, uh, Brian Cleavas, who was a, was a visionary, actually. I think he managed to convince... He's an amazing him. man. He's over at Lascargo yeah. now, and he's still That's a right. friend. Yeah. yeah. And he, he did manage to convince Richard that it was a good idea to to, to invest in this old building that was run down and turned into a members, members club. And Richard said, okay, as long as it's not like one of those stuffy places on Pall Mall, I want a club where there's plenty of ladies in, female members, and they allow dogs. Uh, and I don't want any rules. And they decided on one rule, actually, and it wasn't really much of a rule, but it was, it was always, it was in writing, and that is that the management discourages nudity. <laughs> so, so when people call and say, is there a dress code? I always, I always say, well, we just, we just discourage nudity. And I, I imagine there are a wide array of people in the community who are pleased that has sustained as a rule. Uh, well, I imagine there are any number of people who are, are glad that's that remained true, there. Encouraging dogs as well. I, yeah. I've yet to bring Ludo, but when I when I do come and bring Ludo, I'll be proudly trotting him around the building. Well, look forward to meeting Ludo. Yeah. I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, this is absolutely. This is, by the way been a whirlwind for me because <laughs> like you know I kind of you know I, I looked up Home House and I was like this is great and I'm really looking forward to meeting Andrew but obviously as I mentioned earlier in the episode I had no idea about the build-up and about your journey into, into being uh, in the position you're in and, and it's been absolutely fascinating thank you so much I mean I suppose a, a kind of a closing question is what do you see as being like I mean I think we kind of touched on this anyway but like the most important thing when it comes to like members clubs like Home House in terms of like kind of business development, like, you know, how, how important is it when it comes to sort of, you know, put the big sell up, not that you have to, because they're both so, they're both absolutely brilliant, but like kind of, you know, if you're like um, Jackie's nephew and you're interested in kind of like, you know, developing, you know, you're an entrepreneur and developing a new business, you know, what is the kind of the big sell? Like what, what is going to be the most significantly important thing when it comes to sort of being a member of a, of a club like this in terms of pursuing your own um, business development? It helps everyone's life. I mean, whether, you, whether you're absolutely, it solves your problems, whether it's a partner, a life partner, a business partner, you know, whether broaden your horizons, broaden your connections, have some fun and help your business grow faster. I think, you know, when we talk about people's needs, we all have them and, and we pitch ourselves as a solution to life's problems in some way. And you know, even mental health, it's more and more discussed these days, but it's incredible some of the conversations that take place. And people make friends outside of their normal family, independent people, and it's incredible how people open up and talk through problems and support each other. You're so right, Andrew, and I think one of the things that has really struck me is we talk a lot about in business and we talk a lot about business tips and hints on this podcast. We talk a lot about networking and we encourage people to really put themselves out there and network. And if you have joined a network that has the purpose of networking, that can give you the real confidence to put yourself out there a bit. I think a lot of people don't have that real confidence to make new connections. They don't know where to start. But if you join a network that's actually saying, hey, this is our open, welcoming kind of, this is the place where you come and network, what a great place to start. Absolutely. And I think I would say for for homegrown, you know, us Brits usually are a little bit shy moving forward, particularly when you want to say to people, what do you do? You know, what does your company do? 
Well, uh, you know, homegrown, I tell you, you can unashamedly say that's your opening line. You know, what's your business? What business are you in? How's it going? I mean, that's Brilliant. what it's there for. You don't have to wait um, to, to ask that question. I mean, I tell you what, you may well have an application in your inbox if that even <laughs> yeah. is how it works in the next uh, week or so uh, from, from yours truly, who, uh, who is, uh, I'm ashamed to say, Currently not a member of Home House, but may well be. You, you've sold well, that you magazine. You, you're a young no, entrepreneur. Yes. You've got your theatre company. This is I do, yeah. Exactly. There well, you go. We, we'd be very uh, happy and lucky to have you, Lara. Oh, yeah. Andrew, you've <laughs> just been the best. Thank you so much. And I promise... <laughs> I promise to abide by that one rule uh, for the benefit of everybody, uh, for the benefit of everybody's stomach and their memories and their hopes and dreams. Uh, I'll, I'll abide by that one rule. Andrew, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on um, this episode. And, and we'd love to have you back and, and hear more about how things are developing with, with Home House and, um, you know, maybe in sort of, you know, Provided there is an episode 41 and beyond, you know, who knows in, in months and years to come, there may even be a third one. Who knows? I don't want to, I don't want to plant that seed. I'm sure, um, I'm sure there's many more episodes. <laughs> and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Anyway, it really has been. Thank you so, so much. A few quick T's and C's as ever, listeners, before we um, head off. I, I might actually start because it's been an absolutely brilliant episode. It's been brilliant to have Andrew on. If you are interested in becoming a member of any of the clubs within Home House Collection, we'll link the website in the episode description so you can follow that link really, really quickly and it'd be nice and easy to find. And I strongly recommend it. We can do it together, listeners, because I'm pretty sure I'll be doing something very similar in the coming weeks. So, um, so yeah, definitely check that out. If you want to check out what we've been up to on the podcast, it's very easy. It's the tale as old as time, as it were. You can head over to therestispr.com and you can also email us at info at therestispr.com if you want to get involved in episode of the podcast. Email us at info at demozo.com as well. We'll also pick up on that email address. Uh, you can email us or message us on LinkedIn, Jackie Vores, Lyle Fulton. We'll answer those as well. Uh, and obviously, if you want to check out what Demozo have been up to, there's lots of exciting things coming up in the Demozo quantum. There you go. I used it. I used it. I snuck it in at the end, the quantum word, that word quantum, which I love. If you want to see what Demozo have been up to, then you can head over to demozo.com. Jackie, same time next week. What do you reckon? Yes, please brilliant stuff all listeners thank you so so much for joining us on the latest episode of the rest is pr but until next week from andrew jackie and myself it's bye for now